0: Somebody calculated how much you'd have to eat in red meat in order to um, come up with the equivalent of one dose of IV iron. It was like it was like 140,000 calories worth of stuff. Oh. with some astronomical figure. So, so that's a common bit of advice, but it actually doesn't work.
1: Welcome back to The Curbsiders, the internal medicine podcast well, Hello. That, that, that was way delayed, Stuart. Uh, I think you're half asleep. The internal medicine podcast that uses expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge. I'm Dr. Matthew Watto here with my co-hosts, Dr. Stuart Kent Brigham and Dr. Paul Nelson Williams.
2: <laughs> hey, Matt, how are you, Stuart? Great to be with you as always. Hello, Paul. Hello. Hello, Matt. I,
1: I think the audience appreciates when we cut to like five seconds of awkward silence right off the bat.
2: Yeah, no, please leave. That. I was just sort of marveling. Stuart, rather than interrupting again, just made a thoughtful hmm sound. I just, I'm I'm going to be quietly obsessing over for the rest of the episode now.
3: Yeah. yeah I'm tr- I'm trying to do something different for once. <laughs> Stuart. I don't like it. Stuart, I believe we had some listener
1: feedback that you wanted to share with the audience or that we wanted to share with the audience.
3: That's right. We certainly did. So this is from... Uh, one of our listeners uh, who sent us this feedback, well, obviously it's listener feedback, so it's from a listener who sent us feedback. That's That seems self-explanatory.
2: Anyways, it says... I'm quietly making the stretch <laughs> motion in the corner, just for the audience. <laughs> <laughs> so it says, uh, hey, all. First off, I love the podcast.
3: It keeps me optimistic that I can enjoy a career in internal medicine. Well, wow, that, that's that's kind of a, a bummer way to start already. Uh, Once I'm burned out of working
2: more and earning less as an ID doc. Yeah, no, I I can't wait for him to join the easy breezy world of internal medicine. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Okay,
3: anyways, carry on. uh, It says, uh, I was wondering if you all have ever talked about focusing more on interviews with non subspecialists, or I suppose generalists is the other word for it. Anyways, (laughs) it says, uh, I would, or it, it would be good to interview guideline writers for the ACP guidelines rather than the people writing for subspecialty organizations. I think it would be more useful to hear about things from educated non-specialists, a.k.a. generalists, like the people who write systematic reviews for annals rather than specialists who are biased by their organizations. Hmm. If not drug companies too. I don't know what he means by that. Uh, It says, I loved hearing non-specialists talk about syncope, a.k.a. you guys, and also hearing a non-ID doc talk about PrEP. As someone who is working on a PrEP research project here in a city, I think it's important for general interest to talk about PrEP and teach others about it since that is who we, ID doctors, want to be prescribing PrEP. Keep up the great work. Name withheld. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
1: thank you. Uh, thank you, David. That was a very nice comment. And uh, we, we will be actually... Doing some more interviews in the near future here with non-specialists, and it has been suggested by more than one person that we do do we will be doing a show, putting together something on guidelines and how they're written, and also when you should or shouldn't be skeptical of them. Just at least so you know how they were written, where they're coming
3: from. Um. So I'm. I'm a little confused. So he's an ID doctor who's talking about going back into internal medicine. Is that right? I that believe. I, I, I believe he that? was. Yes. He was predicting future career
1: burnout and then coming back to internal oh. medicine. You know, to change things up in the
2: future. Which I've actually tails out of coconuts and you know. The- <laughs> <laughs> David, we look forward to seeing you in internal medicine. <laughs>
1: Okay, uh, I w- I did want to make a very quick announcement because we want to move on to Picks of the Week. Uh, this, we will be posting this on our website today, which is Monday. Uh, I, actually, not today is Monday when we're recording this, but it will be Monday when this is posted. And we are basically announcing that we are looking for correspondents to be part of the curbsiders. And what do I mean by correspondents? Think Daily Show, uh, John Hodgman, Stephen Colbert— Uh, You don't have to be as funny as Stephen Colbert or uh, Steve Carell, but we are looking for people to help us produce segments, help us write shows, potentially appear on air. If you decide you don't want to do those things and you just want to help us with the technical stuff on the back end, like we are looking to put out lots of content and continue to do this. And we need help to be frank. So we'll be accepting. And if your
3: name is Frank, you get you get two thumbs up. Yeah,
1: <laughs> like my middle name is Frank. So let's move <laughs> on to Picks of the Week. <laughs> and as always, I, I like to check in with Paul on his movie quest. And then, Paul, if you had a specific Pick of the Week, we'd, we'd love to hear it.
2: I can't remember if I made this point before, but I really quit? you quit. A, a good thing to do is if you really love something is to turn it into just an unbearable chore that's almost impossible to accomplish, just to really <laughs> just dredge up enthusiasm for that thing. So I would highly recommend it. if you love something, just do it until you can't stand it anymore. So having said that, I'm still far, far behind. Um, I have seen a couple of movies that have been OK. One I particularly liked, and this will be my recommendation, is the movie Colossal, which is actually, I think, available streaming now. It's a, a 2016 science fiction movie starring Anne Hathaway and Jason Sudeikis. And I, I have a hard time even classifying it as comedy or drama. It's weird for sure. But uh, Anne Hathaway plays a character who's struggling Nobody. with alcoholism. No, but so the the main character is struggling with alcoholism and sort of her life falls apart. And it turns out that somehow she's connected to a gigantic monster in North Korea that's stomping through the city and destroying thousands of lives. Um, and I don't want to give any more away than that, but it, it's worth a watch. It's 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 not one specific genre, but it's, it's sort of odd and compelling. And I think sort of an interesting uh, metaphor for um, addiction and maybe even codependency a little bit. So wait, 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 watch.
3: wait, 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 I I, I kind of had a, a stroke here for a second. What yeah. what's the, is it? Paul Garassi, that that movie?
2: Uh, sorry, what now? What, what's the name of the movie again? Colossal.
3: Colossal. Okay, because th- there was a a movie that came out from North Korea in nineteen eighty five. It's hilarious. <laughs> it's called Pol Garasi. It's about a giant monster that essentially epitomizes like the uh, the ruling class. Anyways, whatever.
2: Was you... it also a metaphor for
3: addiction and <laughs> no? I, I I think it I think it's a I think it's a metaphor for communism or something. I don't know.
1: I would like to recommend. This this came out a little while ago the Netflix show Master of None featuring Aziz Ansari. It's it's just the se- season 1 was pretty good. Season 2 I thought was even better. He just he's a young guy living in New York for he's he's in Italy for part of the show. He his parents were immigrants and he has a lot of interesting play between the having immigrant parents and him kind of adopting more of western culture and there's how he's kind of dealing with his parents' views on religion versus his own. It's just really well done. It's it has good heart. It's uh it's a fun show, so I, I can't recommend it highly enough. Uh is Stuart.
3: It, is it child friendly?
1: Definitely not. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's uh T V M A. TV MA. Yeah. So mm. mature audiences. Understood. One could question if you qualify, Stuart. Uh and I mean that <laughs> I, I I think I turn it off after like five minutes. <laughs> I, uh, I don't, you're plenty mature, Stuart. You have five children and a house full of weird animals. I mean, you're, you're, you're living the dream.
3: (laughs) Yeah. So guys, what's your pick Thanks for the laughs? What's your pick? So my, my pick is a book. So it's, uh, the man who mistook his wife for a hat and other clinical tales. Have you, have you ever read this before? No, but I like the title. Okay, so, so it's by Oliver Sacks, right. and he, he goes over different anecdotal stories from different, different patient encounters. The title is, is about a specific case, but there are other cases as well, one of it, which is about DeGrasse delusion. It's the, the, the delusion where you think that one of your loved ones has been replaced by like, a body snatcher or someone oh. that looks exactly like them. But anyways, it goes over uh, different clinical tales from a neurologist's perspective, how the patients present, but more of like a narrative format. So it helps to to kind of solidify these cases and these diagnoses um, in more of a playful format. I, I, I do recommend it. I think it's a good book.
2: Yeah, I've, I've heard great things about it. I haven't had a chance to read that book yet, but it's by all accounts a solid recommendation. Yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm
1: intrigued. Well, let's, let's move on because we're uh, time-wise here. We should probably move on to the main episode. And uh, this is anemia is a topic that... I, I feel it's a relatively basic topic, but one that is not really taught well or simplified well. So we I think
3: I think you keep scheduling these when I'm not there on purpose. That's what I think.
1: <laughs> David Dr. David Steensma is a senior physician at Dana Farber Cancer Institute and associate professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School. After undergraduate work in physics and astronomy at Calvin College in Michigan, he attended Did the You say un- astronomy? Yes. He attended the University of Chicago Pritzker School of Medicine and then completed clinical training in internal medicine, hematology, and medical oncology at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. After postdoctoral work at the Weatherall Institute of Molecular Medicine at the University of Oxford, England, he joined the hematology consulting staff at Mayo Clinic before moving to Boston in 2009. His clinical research focus is on myelodysplastic syndromes and marrow failure disorders. He has led a number of multi-center trials of hypomethylating agents and hematopoietic growth factors in patients with myelodysplastic syndromes, other, myelo- other myeloid neoplasms, and marrow failure syndromes. Dr. Steensma has has more than 300 peer-reviewed publications and has served as a member of the FDA Oncology Drug Advisory Committee. Uh and section editor for the Journal of Clinical Oncology, and education program chair for the American Society of Hematology. So needless to say, he is quite qualified to teach us about anemia. There's a lot of great clinical pearls in this one, which is we strive to do on every episode. So mm-hmm. I hope you enjoy it.
3: That's right. Unfortunately, I was unable to join Matt in this episode, and that really makes my blood boil. <laughs>
1: Okay. That's not bad. Welcome back to the Curbsiders. This is Dr. Matthew Waddo. I'm proud to be here today with Dr. David Steensma from Dana-Farver, and he is a, an associate professor at Harvard Medical School. Hi, Dr. Steensma.
0: Hello. How are you, Matthew?
1: Good. And I should have asked you before, am I pronouncing your name right? Because I'm kind of notorious for mispronouncing names.
0: You're you're fine.
1: Okay, great. Uh, Paul and Stuart aren't here to make fun of me for that, but that's that's kind of a theme on every show. The first question that I, that I always like to ask all our guests is, if you had to give yourself the kind of one-liner that we give to a patient when we present them on rounds in the hospital, if someone were to say a one-liner about you, what would that sound like?
0: I am a uh, blood and bone marrow doctor uh, focusing on... Patients who have low blood counts primarily, uh, and evaluating them and taking care of them, um, and I do clinical studies as well, clinical trials. So that's my my sort of professional uh, one-liner. And
1: how about uh, how about on a personal level, anything outside of medicine you do that, that you think would be interesting, or that you do just you know for for wellness?
0: So, I uh, have two daughters, one of whom is going to college in just a week, which is very exciting and traumatic for our health. <laughs> uh, and uh, no, I like, uh, I do a lot of different things. I read a lot. Um, I uh, like to do crossword puzzles. And every year for the American Society of Hematology annual meeting, I create a crossword puzzle for the uh, 25,000 attendees who are at the meeting to do. That's always a a fun thing to do. It's usually hematology-themed.
1: Yeah. That sounds like a big meeting, 25,000. Wow.
0: It is. It's nothing compared to like the GI and cardiology meetings. And ASCO, the clinical oncology meeting, is a little bigger, but it is a big meeting.
1: Yeah. Well, you you mentioned you like to read. One of our favorite questions is to always ask everybody either, what is a book you think... Every physician should read, or or just what is a book that you really have enjoyed recently? If you can't think of of one book that's your favorite,
0: well, although not my favorite because it's it's a very sad theme, I uh, not long ago read uh, "When Breath Becomes Air" by Paul Kalanithi, which was incredibly moving. He was a neurosurgical resident who developed advanced cancer and. Um, his wife was here at our institution to talk with us, um, uh, in our humanities group, uh, a few months ago and just, a, a, an incredible book. So if you haven't read it, uh, highly recommend it.
1: Yeah, we had, we had that book recommended. We did a, a palliative care episode and I, I said I would read it. And I actually did read it about a month ago and, uh, it, it didn't make me as sad as i thought it would it, obviously it's a sad book but i i just kind of thought that he he had so much time to think about his end, the end of his life and what he wanted to do for his family and everything and it just i think it was just a really interesting book and just like yeah it did, it it was in certain ways happy but definitely a overall very sad topic so great recommendation
0: he was very eloquent in the way he expressed uh, what he was going through. And I think in that book, which really was not done when he died, uh, and which his his uh, widow uh, put a lot of effort into assembling and making ready for publication along with some uh, friends, I think it, it just left a tremendous legacy for his family and for a lot of the rest of us to learn from.
1: Yeah, Absolutely. Well, another question that, that we often will ask, and I, uh, I'm i kind of leading you into this one because we talked about it before, but I, I wanted you to talk a little bit about the anemia app that, uh, that I had a chance to use this week and I found helpful. Can you tell the audience a little bit about that?
0: Yeah, so um, a few years ago, uh, in order to uh, aid clinicians in evaluating patients with anemia, um, a primary care physician, Brian Kaufman from California, and I designed a anemia app with the help of uh, Betsy Dennison, who's a medical communications expert, and her husband, who is a, a coder. And this anemia app um, really helps clinicians work through the differential diagnosis and suggests an orderly way to approach anemia. Because one of the things that's challenging about anemia is that there's so many different causes and it's it's easy to get lost or easy to just reflex uh, tests that you're used to ordering. And you can get some very useful information just from a CBC that really helps point you in the direction that you should go next in, in terms of uh, further testing.
1: And and the app is pretty easy to use. Uh, it has a nice user interface. You You kind of just click through things and there's just little bullet points that you can read and learn as you go. I definitely recommend it to the audience. And of course, I'll link put links for that in the show notes. And uh, before we move on to the topic of anemia, Dr. mother, the last uh, favorite question we always have is, what is some of the best advice you've ever received, either as a learner or as a teacher?
0: Um, when you have some success, you've gotten a... Um, paper into a journal or you've gotten a grant accepted, you can allow yourself 24 hours to celebrate and then it's time to move on. And <laughs> the converse is also true, that if you have a disappointment, you have something rejected, you get passed over for a position you wanted or a grant, you can sulk for one night, but then the next day you've got to be ready to <laughs> yeah. back up and and uh, you know get back to work. Uh, that was definitely... Uh, some advice that I I have uh, had cause on both ends to think about from time to time.
1: I think that's very wise advice there. Well, as always, we're going to start off with a case from Cashlack Memorial Hospital. And the... The case, the case here. We're going to have about three cases on this epi- episode if things go as planned. And I always like to, w- when we have our experts on, remind them. Our we have listeners that range from medical students through mid level providers to attending physicians. So we always like to assume that uh, assume that people are starting from scratch with their knowledge. So we usually try to explain things in pretty basic terms, and then we'll, we build up by the end of the episode to the more advanced advanced topics. So this case from Cashlac is a 62 uh, year old male has diabetes with some microvascular disease, has a hemoglobin of 10. This is a new diagnosis. MCV is 90, and A1, his A1C is 7.8%. He has a baseline creatinine of 1.9, and we check some iron studies. His his ferritin level looks normal. His iron saturation is is 40 some percent, and the reticulocyte count is low normal. So before we kind of get into dissecting this case, I did want to ask you, how do you even define anemia? And um, and, and are there different cutoffs if the patients are of older age? Because we're going to kind of focus on the, the, the older age population for this talk.
0: So the most common uh, values that have been used to define anemia are those that were suggested in 1968 by the World Health Organization. And that is a hemoglobin less than 12 grams per deciliter in non-pregnant adult women and 13 grams per deciliter in men. Um, different laboratories in different hospitals and clinics have a distinct normal range, uh, but the Overall, those are the most commonly used cutoffs for sort of epidemiologic studies. Now, they don't take into account age. They don't take into account race because people of African descent tend to run a little bit lower hemoglobin normally than those of European and Asian descent. They don't take into account things like uh, altitude of residence. So, for instance, folks in Denver, Colorado tend to have a hemoglobin that's about a gram per deciliter higher on average than those of us who live here in Boston right at sea level. So in the individual patient, when you're assessing what is a normal hemoglobin, you have to take that into account. In addition, in older patients, it's been shown that values that are even technically within the normal range, but at the lower end of that range, tend to be associated with Inferior outcomes compared to those who are a little bit higher on the range. So there are some um, nuances to what is a normal hemoglobin and what is anemia. But 13 and 12 are the most commonly used thresholds.
1: And in in the in the slide deck that I was able to find uh, about from your anemia talks that you've given, it said that over 85 years old, there's like 20 20% of women and almost 25% of men are anemic. So is, is it is anemia just a normal part of aging? And, and if it's not, then why do we need to work it up?
0: Well, it is incredibly common as people get older. Um, during the reproductive age, uh, anemia is much more common in women because of menstruation and childbirth and um, dietary differences. Uh, but as people get older, anemia becomes more common in uh, men. Uh, reaching the thresholds that, that you just mentioned. And the reason that it's important not to just uh, blow it off, especially if the anemia is significant, is that the anemia can be a sign of a serious problem, something that um, needs to be evaluated and treated. And so there is a lot of very mild anemia, and some of it it's fine to Sort of do an initial assessment, and if it nothing turns up then then you can just monitor. but there are certainly a number of folks with uh, uh, anemia that that uh, needs to be intervened upon
1: now for for this case that that I've given you with this 62 year old male hemoglobins 10, what numbers when you when you look at a CBC and you and you first see someone's anemic, where where does your eye go first, and what should the audience How should they be thinking about this?
0: The first thing that I always look at is the MCV because there is nothing else that uh, so easily helps you with the differential diagnosis as the MCV. The causes of a macrocytic anemia, those with an MCV over 95, are very different from those that cause microcytic anemia with an MCV of 80 or below. I also want to look at the other counts. So for instance, is this patient just anemic or do they have thrombocytopenia and uh, leukopenia as well? If they have other cytopenias, then that's more concerning than if they just have uh, anemia. Uh, Pancytopenia is never a good thing. So um, those things also one looks at. And then the... uh, the red cell distribution width helps a, a little bit too, uh, and but we'll get to that uh, as we talk about normocytic anemia. Really, the first thing that you should look at is the MCV, and then what are the other counts besides the red cell count?
1: Mm-hmm. So let's say for this person, they have their other counts are normal. The MCV is ninety. Where are you going to go from there?
0: So when you have an MCV of ninety, which is considered within the normal range. This is a patient who likely has um, either an anemia of chronic inflammation uh, or anemia of renal insufficiency, and it's also possible that the patient has two different subtypes of anemia, one causing microcytic anemia, one causing macrocytic anemia, and such that they average out, so the MCV overall is, is within the normal range. A good example of that would be somebody who has celiac disease where they're malabsorbing both uh, folate and iron. Well, folate deficiency causes macrocytosis. Um, the iron deficiency causes microcytosis, and the MCV may turn out to be uh, normal in that case. The RDW in such a patient would be quite wide. The RDW red cell distribution width is a measure of how heterogeneous is the cell population. How diverse are those red cells in their size? So if it's, you know, 13 or 14, that's within the normal range. That suggests all the red cells are all pretty much the same size. They may all be too small. They may all be normal size, but they're all similar. If you have an RDW in contrast, that's 20. That's a patient that has um, a diverse um, repertoire of cell sizes. So that Maybe somebody with a combined deficiency, or just with a single deficiency like iron deficiency, that can cause uh, by itself a broad RDW.
1: And this person now. So, just to recap, so we've looked at their cell, all the cell lines. We looked at the hemoglobin, the MCV, the RDW. Let's say for this person is normal. Uh, so the RDW is 14 for this this case that I've given you. What other tests? What other tests do you look for after that initial CBC? What's going to be your next round of testing that you'd order?
0: So in this uh, person, uh, because we know that their iron saturation is reasonable um, and their RDW is normal, this is most likely somebody with either anemia of renal insufficiency or anemia of chronic disease. So it will be helpful first just to look at the creatinine and then uh, we also are likely in this patient to want to get a serum erythropoietin level. One of the reasons that we want to get that serum erythropoietin level is both diagnostic and therapeutic. If the serum erythropoietin level is quite low, then that suggests a patient who may respond to an erythropoiesis stimulating agent like Epotin or Darbopotin.
1: And- when you uh, so I've checked the, the erythropoietin levels a couple times for patients like this where I was suspecting anemia of chronic disease, uh, kidney disease and then if it comes back normal or inappropriately normal or low normal are those patients that we should be referring for to be given erythropoietin um, and do primary care doctors give that or is that almost always given by either a hematologist or a, or a nephrologist.
0: Uh, It's most commonly given by a nephrologist or a hematologist, but primary care doctors do from time to time give erythropoietin. There are a series of published nomograms out there that uh, say what an appropriate erythropoietin level should be for a given degree of anemia. So the normal EPO range is from about 5 to about 20 units per liter. Well let's say we have an individual like this whose hemoglobin is ten and their ePO level uh, is within that normal range well for the even though it's quote unquote within the normal range for this patient because of their degree of anemia their ePO level really should be on the order of seventy to one hundred uh, in order to for them to be responding appropriately so even though it might be normal that still indicates that the Kidney is not responding appropriately to uh, the erythropoietic need,
1: and what happens with the erythropoietin for patients with chronic inflammation? Does it look similar to patients with with CKD? Is it is there a way we can differentiate between the two?
0: Uh, we can't buy erythropoietin alone, but we can buy the iron studies. Um, so somebody who has anemia of inflammation will often have a high ferritin, a low TIBC, and then the serum iron is typically uh, normal. So their saturation may be normal. Uh, their iron saturation, which is serum iron divided by iron binding capacity, may be either normal or even slightly high in the anemia of uh, inflammation. Okay,
1: and I when when I was looking at the the K Digo guidelines, the um. The, the kidney organization, I don't remember what the entire acronym stands for, it looks like their, their targets for ferritin and iron sat are very high. So what, what numbers should we keep in our head? Like if we were think of re- thinking of referring somebody for, um, for erythropodin, what numbers do you want to see there before that you start giving them the erythropodin?
0: Well, you'd like to see the iron saturation over 20% before giving erythropoietin. If it's less than that, it it suggests that the patient does have some element of iron deficiency, and that that could be a a factor in their anemia. And uh, we won't get reimbursed if we give erythropoietin to someone who is uh, iron deficient.
1: is there any sort of cutoff for ferritin or is it really just the iron sat that we're looking for for in in those patients?
0: Uh, There is actually some controversy about what the ferritin uh, cutoff uh, should be. Uh, 800 is um, often used to designate someone who is clearly uh, iron replete. For somebody whose ferritin is within the normal range, say 200, 300, but they have inflammation, they may still be functionally iron deficient uh, because the body is not able to use the iron uh, as effectively. So um, it, it's complicated.
1: Yeah, that that has always confused me about anemia of chronic inflammation because the the person maybe their iron sat is low or but but their ferritin is like 150. It, do we give those patients oral iron or do they need IV iron? How do you decide what to do there? Um, before before they're going to get treated for the anemia of chronic inflammation?
0: Well, it turns out patients with the anemia of uh, chronic inflammation, if their iron stores are borderline, they very rarely respond to oral iron. So if they're going to get any iron at all, it probably should be parenteral iron. In the old days, when we only had iron dextran, that was a bit of a daunting um, proposition. But now, since we have... A number of different iron salts that are safer for intravenous use. That giving of IV iron has become much more routine.
1: And I, I think we should probably jump back and and for for ferritin levels because when when you check ferritin levels on patients without CKD or without inflammation, usually the numbers we're seeing are in the the fifty to a hundred range or so, at least. In the labs that I'm working, or you know that I'm using, these are for kind of otherwise relatively healthy patients. And if if it's low, it's usually less than fifteen is is the cutoff I've seen. Can you give us? Can you kind of go through with with ferritin what what cutoffs you look for, and and if it differs based on the the underlying disease a patient has?
0: Yeah, so um, definitely. So if you see somebody whose ferritin is under twenty they are pretty much iron deficient by definition. The hard part comes when they are at higher levels because it's very difficult to estimate the degree of ferritin elevation that's just from inflammation alone. There's a a somewhat newer test that can help us out quite a bit. It's called the soluble transfer and receptor. It's commonly confused with transferrin saturation. It's not the same thing. Transferrin saturation is serum iron level divided by TIBC, total iron binding capacity. The soluble transferrin receptor is actually measuring the level of um transferrin circulating uh in the blood. And that is not sensitive to iron um to inflammation. So if that's elevated, the patient is truly iron deficient, even if the ferritin may be within the normal range. So in ambiguous cases, I use that to help sort it out. And that's widely available now.
1: That's great. I, I that was on my list of things to ask you about because that is not a test that I have been using and I, I recently changed jobs. I, I've seen it kind of going around, but I wasn't exactly sure how to interpret it. So that's that's going to be helpful for me. Thank you for that. You bet. So, okay. So with this patient, getting back to this first case we had here, uh, it looks like his, his ferritin was 58, his iron sat was 48%, so higher than 20, hemoglobin is 10. How would you how would you end up treating this patient? Let's say we're calling this anemia of uh, of CKD. Let's say the EPO level came back low.
0: Well, so this is um, a somewhat challenging area from a regulatory standpoint because although the patient's EPO level is at a level where it, it sounds like he would benefit uh, from supplementation, the insurers have varied in how they will reimburse. Uh, EPO in a non-dialysis uh, patient. And so there may be specific regulations that your regional Medicare provider, for instance, has for whether this is somebody who could get an ESA or not. Physiologically, there's no reason for him not to get it. He, he likely will uh, benefit from erythropotent supplementation, but it may not be uh, reimbursed. And his iron is high enough that he is not uh likely to benefit from repletion of the of the iron, so this is somebody who, if you can the inflammation component treat so for instance, somebody who has rheumatoid arthritis um where that is flaring and that's contributing to the anemia uh that's that's somebody who may. A benefit from treatment of that specific inflammatory condition, but for somebody like this, where it sounds like it's just sort of low-level, non-specific inflammation, where it's somebody who, um, you know, likely has a component of renal insufficiency as well, he he may or may not be able to get erythropoietin, but if he can get it, he's likely to benefit from it.
1: Okay, great. That's that's helpful, and I I know that for. Dialysis patients, uh, it seems like this number is kind of a moving target, but the hemoglobin goal is somewhere around eleven if you're giving them erythropoietin for non for patients who aren't on dialysis, is there any similar goal or is it is it to make this this person have a normal hemoglobin again? It, it seems like that might not be possible, especially if the insurance company's not gonna cover cover the medication.
0: That's right. So most commonly, we are permitted to initiate uh, an ESA if the hemoglobin falls below 10 grams per deciliter. But um, we can't uh, drive it above 12 grams per deciliter. So usually if the hemoglobin level is above 11 grams per deciliter, an ESA won't be reimbursed. So we end up effectively keeping people somewhere between 10 and 12 uh, grams per deciliter, and that's usually for most patients. That's enough to minimize symptoms.
1: Okay, great. I I, I want to move on to the next case, and this is a a seventy two year old lady uh, also at Cashlack Memorial. She she's coming in with uh, she has high blood pressure, her kidney functions normal, and she she presents with a new new hemoglobin of eleven. Her MCV is in the low eighties, and uh. Her, her serum chemistries are normal that included uh she also had some liver liver function testing done as well so what what tests would you order here
0: for for this lady so this is somebody where um because of the microcytosis you you have to think about uh, iron deficiency first and foremost and so I'd want to know what her ferritin and what her transfer and saturation were mm-hmm.
1: and do you do you check a reticulocyte count on all anemic patients when you're, when you're kind of getting that second round of tests?
0: I don't routinely, um, but it can provide helpful information. Um, what the reticulocyte count really tells us is whether the um, anemia is uh, proliferative or hypoproliferative. We want a corrected reticulocyte count over 2%. For a patient who has anemia to indicate that the bone marrow is responding appropriately to the anemia. And if the corrected reticulocyte count is under 2%, that means that the bone marrow isn't responding either because it doesn't have the raw materials to make cells, i.e., the patient's iron deficient or B12 deficient, or there's something intrinsically wrong with the bone marrow. The patient has uh, leukemia or myelodysplasia or one of these hematologic disorders.
1: And and when you said uh pro hyperproliferative, so that's that's the retic count greater than two percent, and then a hypoproliferative pr- is if it's less than two percent the the corrected reticulocyte count?
0: That's correct.
1: Okay. And some labs uh, they report a reticulocyte index. Is that the same thing, or is there the corrected count where you have to divide it by the hemoglobin or some or the hematocrit, something like that? Can you can you refresh my memory on that?
0: Yeah. So the the um, corrected reticulocyte count is when you just multiply the reticulocyte count by the patient's hematocrit over the sort of goal hematocrit. Okay. And so um, that takes into account the fact that If the patient's anemic, the reticulocyte count should be higher Mm. than if the patient has a a normal hematocrit. The reticulocyte index takes into account the increased survival of reticulocytes as well, which when the hematocrit is close to normal is negligible. And so there the corrective reticulocyte count will be the same as the reticulocyte index. But in somebody who's significantly anemic, um, then that needs to be accounted for, and so there is a table depending on whether the crit is between twenty-five to thirty-five percent or fifteen to twenty-five percent. Um, there's a factor that gets divided by, uh, but that should also be uh, over two percent.
1: Okay. Yeah, it gets it gets a little complicated with the reticulocyte index, but I, I find sometimes it, it it can be helpful, and there. So this lady um she had a, a microcytic anemia is and we kind of already talked about mixed anemia so I don't think we need to to go through that too much more. So how would you decide about how to give this lady iron whether it's oral iron or IV iron? What what factors would push you towards IV iron specifically?
0: Well, I think the first thing we want to do is is make sure we know why she's iron deficient. So um, you know, GI bleeding has to be ruled out in a patient, especially an older patient who's newly been found to be iron deficient. But let's say we've we've corrected that uh, or um, it's something we can't fix, like arteriovenous malformations. Traditionally, the teaching always was give oral iron before you give intravenous iron because intravenous iron is so much more expensive and dangerous. Now, however, we're finding that such a small proportion of patients actually tolerate oral iron, and the IV irons that are available now are safer than it, they used to be. Um, and yes, they they are somewhat more costly, but you know, it's also costly fiddling around with oral iron that <laughs> is a thing for, for three to four months. So there's been a trend towards increasing use of uh, the parenteral iron uh, preparations. Um, And and that's uh, usually quite a a safe thing to do. The one thing that never works is to just tell the patient to eat more red meat. (laughs) Because, uh, you know, 100 grams of steak has less than 2 milligrams of iron in it. And it has, you know, a few hundred calories. So somebody calculated how much you'd have to eat in red meat in order to... uh, uh, come up with the equivalent of one dose of iv iron and it was like it was like 140,000 calories worth of stuff oh. with some astronomical figure so so that's a common bit of advice but it actually doesn't doesn't work yeah
1: uh, did, did you hear any of this? Uh, so we've done a couple episodes with the folks from the American College of Physicians uh, recapping some of the big things that came out of that this year. And everybody was all excited about this study by Moretti et al. from Blood in 2015 where they were they were using, I believe it was relatively young and healthy patients and they were getting every other day iron and they were talking about how this prevents the hepcidin levels from, from blocking iron absorption because I guess they go up for 48 hours after you give an oral load of iron. What do you think about that in the, in the hematology circles? Is that something that people are following now?
0: It is something that uh, people have suggested when patients have had gastrointestinal disturbances. But most of the patients that I see, their recommendation has been uh, to, to take uh, daily oral iron at least one time a day and preferably three times if you if you can to get it in.
1: Okay. And the other thing that I wanted to ask about, this is kind of, I believe, an older practice, is, is co-administration of vitamin C or ascorbic acid with iron. Is that practice now, has that been debunked or is that something that people can consider doing for their patients?
0: There is evidence that vitamin C does modestly increase the oral uh, iron absorption Um, it doesn't make a big difference there are several preparations out there that are combination pills of oral iron and vitamin c they tend to be a little bit more expensive than just the garden variety ferrous sulfate tablets that are the most commonly ones used Um, so there are some patients in whom adding the vitamin c makes a difference it tends to be people who have um Uh, low acidity in their stomach so for instance people who are on uh, proton pump inhibitors and have low gastric acidity they may have a little bit more difficulty uh, absorbing iron and vitamin c may may help a little bit with that
1: great that's okay that makes sense and then of course uh, we didn't mention it but it, I think you just have to for for our listeners if someone's had a gastric bypass surgery you really have to think about or, or if someone has Crohn's Crohn's or you know any sort of bowel disease you you do want to think about whether what surgeries they've had and will they potentially be malabsorbing in general.
0: Correct. Yes, uh, gastric uh, bypass surgery is um notorious for Various types of nutritional deficiencies developing if they're not supplemented.
1: And with the last uh, five or ten minutes here, I, I want to move on to the last case, a case of macrocytic anemia this time. Uh, let's just say same 72-year-old female, but uh, change her history a little bit. She, she's had breast cancer in the past. It's now in remission, but she had a lumpectomy. She had the adjuvant chemotherapy, plus she had radiation uh, to the breast, the treatment was done about six years ago. Now she's coming in with fatigue, some dyspnea on exertion, and her hemoglobin is 9.6. Her MCV is 102. Rest of the CBC is normal. Can you kind of walk us through the the macrocytic anemia? What's your approach to this?
0: In some ways, macrocytic anemia is pretty straightforward because um, once you've checked a B12 and folate level, and you've gone through the medication list and talked to the patient about their alcohol use, if the cause of that macrocytic anemia is not apparent from those four things, that's someone who should see a hematologist. As many of the macrocytic anemias are related to neoplasia. This patient with her history of cancer treatment uh, likely has therapy-related myelodysplastic syndrome. And so that's somebody who needs to see uh, me or one of my colleagues. The B12 and folate level are fairly straightforward to check. The one thing that one always has to consider is that B12 levels that are at the low end of the lab's normal range may still be consistent with tissue level B12 deficiency. So if you have a B12 level that's less than 400, you should also check either a serum or urine methylmalonic acid and if that's elevated then that suggests tissue level vitamin b12 deficiency i
1: i didn't know you could check a a urine level methylmalonic acid i've also been made fun of on this podcast by one of my colleagues for uh just if it's less than 400 i just give people oral b12 until it comes up above like a, a b12 level of 500 um usually it comes back like greater than a thousand or something like that, if they've been on, if they've been taking it for a while, um, rather than, than have them stuck again. So I'm not recommending that to the audience, but, um, just, (laughs) just bringing up a past episode is, is there a B12 level? Uh, so is 400 your goal when you put someone on treatment when, uh, for the, for repletion? You
0: you don't necessarily have a a goal for where you'd uh, like them to be at once they're being repleted. Usually they're being repleted because um, their hemoglobin is low. And uh, in that case, you just want to see normalization of the, of the hemoglobin. But 400 is the level below which it's important to consider the possibility of um, tissue level B12 deficiency, even despite a, a normal range. Interestingly, if, if somebody's not on... A B12 supplement, and they have a very high level of vitamin B12, that is most commonly related to a myeloproliferative neoplasm. So those patients um, frequently have myelofibrosis or polycythemia vera or one of the disorders in that family. The, those disorders are associated with increased production of a B12 binding protein called transcobalamin. So it's wow. one of those things you see somebody they're not on supplementation and they come in and their B12 level is 1,200, which is above the normal range. That's something to think about.
1: There's there's going to be lots of people listening to this, and I bet you someone's light bulb is going to go off there and be like, "That's why that patient has a high B12 level." So you you might have just saved somebody there, there or at go. least helped them diagnose. Uh, I did not know that. That's awesome. Um, is, is there anybody that needs the subcutaneous or I, I guess, is it always subcutaneous B12 or now that I've mostly seen, uh, that people are getting a thousand or 2000 a day, even if they've had like, even if you think they're a malabsorber, but do you have patients you're still doing the either parenteral or subcutaneous B12?
0: Yes. So, um, the B12 is typically given if it's given parenterally intramuscularly. And that used to be the way it was always given until people realized that if you give enough B12 orally, most of the time, just by passive diffusion or by receptor binding, it will get absorbed at meaningful levels. Um, And so we've moved in B12 from being sort of always parenteral uh, to now mostly oral repletion, in contrast to iron repletion, where it used to be almost all oral, and now we're using more and more parenteral. So they're sort of moved uh, mirror images of, e- of each other. Um, but the, the patient who I would still consider for parenteral repletion is the patient with uh, neurologic dysfunction. So if somebody comes in with you know subacute combined degeneration of the cord, that's somebody who needs parenteral B12 to ensure that they're getting rapid repletion of that essential mineral or essential vitamin.
1: Okay, that makes sense. And I I do want to ask you so for this patient b is normal, folate's normal, they have no thyroid or liver problems. We we don't think there's any sort of lab artifact like cold agglutinins or um any any of the other ones you you had some listed here uh like hy- uh hyperglycemia, hyperleukocytosis, some of those can cause Uh, a false reading of macrocytosis so none of that's present what what are you going to do next for this person
0: so that's somebody that um it sounds like they're not on a medication that could be causing it so i would suggest to the patient in order to understand what's going on we really need to submit you to a bone marrow biopsy and that would be the next step in this case
1: you know, I, I think I, I let you go through there without listing just a couple culprit medications that, that might cause the, the macrocytosis.
0: One of the most common ones that we see is methotrexate, mm. um, commonly used for rheumatoid arthritis. Another one that uh, is frequently associated with the macrocytosis is azathioprine or imuran, uh, which is commonly used for inflammatory bowel disease. And then hydroxyurea, which many of our sickle cell patients uh, take, that's another one that can cause macrocytosis. So there are some rare ones, but those are the the ones that are most commonly associated with that finding.
1: And when when I was in medical school, which is now uh, seven plus years ago, they... I remember kind of learning about, maybe I wasn't paying attention as much as I should have, but I I remember MDS being said, like, most patients are going to die of something else, not their MDS, and then I just turned my brain off and didn't learn anything about like the treatment or the workup of it. But let's say if this lady had MDS, she's symptomatic, she's got anemia, and uh, you, you did the bone marrow biopsy, are there... What what good therapies are, are available now maybe that weren't as widespread back when I was learning about this?
0: Well, so this is a patient who, because of their therapy history, likely if they have MDS, it's high-risk disease, and they're likely to progress within the next few months to a year. And so that certainly uh, influences how we approach patients. We have three FDA-approved medications for MDS azacitidine and d which change the way DNA is folded and the way genes are expressed, and lenalidomide, which is a uh, immune-modulating agent that also has some other favorable effects in certain uh, types of bone marrow disorders. And so uh, those two medications, um, are, those two classes of medications are uh, useful for MDS. In addition, uh, the only Potential cure for MDS is a stem cell or bone marrow transplant, and so we're doing more and more of those each year for patients with MDS. And somebody with therapy-related disease would certainly be a, a candidate for consideration of stem cell transplantation.
1: Has the prognosis changed a lot when patients are on those classes of agents? Are they are they fairly effective?
0: Well, they, they help a little bit. So for instance for higher risk MDS patients, the average survival azocytidine improves by about nine months from fifteen to twenty-four months. So, you know, it's we still have a lot of work to do. It's nothing to write home about uh by any means. But it's uh it's better than no treatment at all.
1: Okay. Yeah, I, I and, and for, for let's say if we're going to be seeing more patients on these medications potentially, are there any big, with, with each of the classes, are there any big side effects that we should think of or co- complications to look out for in primary care?
0: Um, I would say that most of these patients who are receiving these medications are, are going to be under the close uh, care of a hematologist and so would be likely to be seeing them uh, quite quite regularly. Uh, but uh, the most common side effects that we see with decidabine and azacitidine are a worsening of the cytopenias before they get better later on. And the most common side effects that we see with lenalidomide include also worsening of the cytopenias, but uh, rash and less commonly neuropathy.
1: Okay, Yeah. I, I haven't seen too many patients on these, but it's it's just always good to know. I mean, sometimes you'd be surprised what we see in primary care. Patients are, you know, they're they're like for some reason they're coming to you with what's probably an obvious complication of therapy being given by a specialist, but they they want you to see them. And so sometimes it's helpful to know these things.
0: Oh, definitely. Yeah, I can understand that.
1: Well, I feel like uh, a lot of my questions have been answered here. And of course, we have the great anemia app that, that we kind of plugged up front to, to look to for some answers. But can, can you leave us with a, like two or three take-home points that you want the audience to remember a, about anemia?
0: Well, I think it's important in anemia, um, not to blow it off, but actually just to, to think through it. Um, not all anemia is iron deficiency, but anemia certainly can be a sign of a serious disease that that may be able to to be treated and i think the orderly approach by looking at the mcv first to help formulate the differential diagnosis you know between the the mcv the history uh you can sort out 8 out of 10 cases
1: okay yeah i i i think I think people are going to do a lot better job, hopefully, uh, hopefully not just ordering iron studies and then throwing up their arms saying that they don't know what to do now that, now that we've gone through what I think are some of the most common, common causes of anemia. So thank you so much for your time. This has been awesome.
0: My pleasure. Thanks for featuring this topic.
1: And we're back. Well, hello. Hello. Hello, Stuart. <laughs> hello, Paul. You guys still with me there?
3: Is this the so intro, anyway. the outro, or the mid Intro. I,
1: I think outro? I just, so, I mean, we, we spoke with Dr. Steensma about anemia. You guys weren't there, unfortunately. Uh, sorry again, Stuart, that we uh, yet again talked about iron without mm-hmm. you being there. I know it's your favorite topic. So I imagine you have some sort of response to this episode. So what did you want to leave the audience with? Um, anything we missed or anything that struck you as important?
3: It, it, not, not so much that, that you missed. There was a couple of points that I thought were, were really pivotal, and one was, was looking at the soluble transferrin and looking at that as a marker for iron deficiency. If you have any question based off of what the, the other markers look like, so instead of just relying on the ferritin or the, um, or the iron saturation, for example, I, I, I don't routinely use a soluble transferrin, and I, I thought that information was, was exceptionally helpful. And I I think
1: an example of where that might come in, let's say a patient has like a decubitus ulcer and you're worried, Mm. is this, they're anemic, are they iron deficient or is is their ferritin's reading like 200 because they have a decubitus ulcer so they have chronic inflammation but you're like, I feel like this patient might be iron deficient. If you check a soluble transferrin receptor, that is not responsive to inflammation so that will... That will give you a true reflection of the patient's iron status. So if the soluble transferrin receptor is very high, it suggests that that patient is actually iron deficient and their ferritin is high just because of inflammation, not because their iron stores are actually actually replete. And yeah, that was for me a really helpful take-home point because I had not known to do that.
3: Yeah, and another thing I thought is similarly to that was the um, the lack of ability to really absorb oral iron for those patients that have anemia of chronic disease, and that for those patients you might want to consider putting them more on the IV iron infusion instead of just doing the oral iron. And I thought that was very helpful as well because I, I've run into this problem multiple times in my clinic.
1: I I have not I have not been using that much IV iron. But I think that you know, for, for patients, especially if you think they're not going to absorb it, like gastric bypass, you should mm-hmm. jump right to that. If you can get it covered and push through, it sounds like it's pretty safe and that might be the way to yeah. go for a lot
3: of people. And the last thing I thought that was interesting... And uh, I, I had no clue about the association p- between transcobalamin and myelodysplastic syndrome. And, you know, it, it's possible that I've been missing that as well. I've seen multiple patients with a, a B12 of greater than whatever the the uh, uh, upper limit is and didn't even think about myelodysplastic syndrome. Yeah, it,
1: and I think he said it could be a, a proliferative disorder uh, right, as right. well. So you, you just have to kind of like look... Uh, look into that if you see it. D- don't just dismiss it. And and I yeah. I think for, for patients with macrocytosis, there were about four things he said to look for, which was folate, B12, alcohol use, and then any medications that might be yeah. causing it. And if you don't see those, patients with macrocytosis, they should be referred to, to, uh, to hematology, oncology, for a bone marrow biopsy. So I probably have not been aggressive enough at doing that.
3: And, you, you know... I, I know you know that, that I've talked about this multiple times, Matt, but one of the things that really kind of stumps me is the prevalence of iron deficiency, even for non-anemic patients, and I've seen this before where um, I, I've gone through multiple questions in a questionnaire that I've, in the process of, of writing up, and I, I found that for those patients that are almost pan-positive when you're asking questions about dopamine, norepi, epi, serotonin, melatonin, pathways, um, I, I've actually had patients where I'm like, hey, I, I really think you're iron deficient, but your RDW is fine, your MCV is fine, you're not anemic, and I check ferritin and I've had several patients who have had ferritins of less than five and it completely has stumped me. That's one thing I wanted to ask about him and the future is something I I do want to investigate a little bit more. But one thing that I have found um, is, is so he, he, he was mentioning looking at the MCV first, which is certainly important. I think looking at the MCV in con in context with the RDW is important because one of the things that you develop first in iron deficiency is anisocytosis that may expand as you start to become microcytic. And so looking at that RDW in context of the patient's history is vitally important. And so certainly I, I, to, I completely agree with him, but, but understanding the, the, um, uh, the sequence of events that leads to iron deficiency anemia for those patients that truly are are iron deficient and being able to identify those patients that maybe because of nutrient deficiencies, recent uh, gastrointestinal uh, uh, bypass or Crohn's disease patients, celiac disease patients, those patients who routinely are known to not absorb sufficient amounts of of iron. If you ask some of the questions that are related to some of those neurotransmitters, uh, you might be able to accurately identify those patients earlier in the disease process.
1: Right, right. So there's you're saying that before the iron deficiency shows up, right. you're you've noticed that you're seeing clinical right. symptoms of people who
3: are, you know, absolutely. deficient in
1: these neurotransmitters that are down mm-hmm. down the stream in the iron pathway.
3: Ab- absolutely. Got and it's it. something I do want to I do want to talk about more in the future, but unfortunately I wasn't there to talk with uh, Dr. Steinsma. Yeah. Yeah, yeah sorry about that. that.
1: And uh the the last thing I'll say on iron, uh I did the KDIGO guidelines. If you look up when they're talking about patients with anemia and CKD, if they have a ferritin less than 500 or an iron sat less than 30%, it, this is like a weak recommendation, but they say consider giving IV iron, or if they're not on dialysis, consider giving them a trial of oral iron to get their levels, the, the iron sat to 30% or more, or the ferritin to 500 or more, which those numbers are just so high. That's, that's something that um, I I can't say that I've been doing, but uh, the KDGO guidelines I'll link to them. You can look at them yourself in uh, in the show notes here. Excellent. And Paul, you're you're silent over there. Did you have any any points oh, that you wanted to ma- highlight?
2: A, I mean, this is Stewart's time to shine. So you'd know, I, I be excited <laughs> about iron. I think my favorite takeaway point was the 140,000 calories of steak it would take to actually equal one dose <laughs> of the iron. That was yeah. I listened around dinner time, and that sounded fantastic to me. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I think that's a good spot. I think that's a good spot to end on. And uh, we can just go ahead and do the outro. This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole.
2: Quite delicious. can calories.
1: You can find find show notes along with links to any articles, books, websites, or apps mentioned on the show at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast. And you can also sign up to receive our monthly video newsletter summarizing the key tools, tips, and tricks for your practice at thecurbsiders.com forward slash knowledge food. And uh, I I had mentioned on a, uh, I had had just thought of the idea, and this will be mentioned on future shows as well, but I will be sending a PDF copy of the show notes to everybody subscribing to the newsletter. So that way Monday uh, it will come to your email inbox and you can print that out if you want to. That's a request that we've been getting from some people, so we will be doing that. And also the video newsletter. We are constantly trying to make that better. Still a work in progress. Um, I think what I'm proposing this time, Stuart, Paul, and I will all sit down 10 or 15 minutes and recap the learning we've done that month, and, uh, and then we can we can make that available as a video file on YouTube. So and and we'll send it in the email. Uh, so please give us your feedback on that. We I, I do think it's an important thing to recap the learning we've done each month. So. Let us know. You can send an email to thecurbsiders at gmail.com. Recommend a future topic. Tell us what you love or hate about the show. And finally, follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at The Curbsiders. Until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Watto.
3: And I'm Dr. Stuart Kent Brigham. (laughs) Good night.
2: And I remain Paul Williams. Good night.
3: The maturity level
1: is just so high. (laughs) It's just so high. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs>